Good afternoon. On behalf of the Chairman of the Board of the Atlantic Council, John Huntsman, on behalf of uh, the Vice President of the Atlantic Council and Director of the Rafi Career Center for the Middle East, Frank Richard Doney, and ever, all of us at the Atlantic Council, uh, welcome to the launch of the Atlantic Council's Middle East Strate Strategy Task Force. I'm Fred Kemp, President and CEO of the Atlantic Council. We're pleased to be joined by some of the task force's senior advisors, as well as many of our friends from Middle Eastern and European diplomatic communities. As you can see by looking around you, we have a full house, but we also have a virtual full house. Uh, so welcome also to our viewers around the world. Uh, this event is live streaming on our website in Arabic translation as well. And a full video of today's event, both in Arabic and English, will be posted on the Council's website following the event. This is an innovation for us. I believe, Frank, this is the first event that we've done with live translation, live streaming from the Rafi Kariri Center. We now have this capability and we will do this more often. We encourage you to interact online by following uh, at AC Mideast and tweet using the hashtag, hashtag ACMEST. That's the acronym for this group, so uh, hashtag ACMEST. I want to particularly greet, welcome, and salute the founder of the Rafiq Hariri Center for the Middle East, Baha Hariri, who's in Washington today with us for the launch of this group. Uh, on behalf of all of us, Baha, I want to thank you for your vision, without which this center would not exist and this task force would not exist. And thank you for entrusting to us uh, the legacy of your great father, uh, Prime Minister Rafi Kariri. Today, after more than a year of behind-the-scenes groundwork, we're proud to announce that former U.S. Secretary of State Madeleine Albright and former U.S. National Security Advisor Stephen Hadley will co-chair the Atlantic Council's Middle East Strategy Task Force in the bipartisan manner for which the Atlantic Council has become known. It's an ambitious project to advance the public policy discussions toward a new global consensus on how to, uh, how to address the challenges and opportunities confronting the Middle East. In a moment, I'll invite Secretary Albright to the stage to tell us more about the task force's work, but let me first give you some context on how this task force fits in the Atlantic Council's larger mission of working together with our friends and allies around the world to secure the global future. Through the ideas we develop and the communities we convene, we emphasize an active approach to policy communities around the world with a premium on highly relevant and impactful policy recommendations. Over the last several years, we've seen a growing need for well-developed, actionable strategy for addressing the world's problems. For too long, the United States and its global friends have focused on tactics, jumping from crisis to crisis without a larger plan for leading the world to a better future with our friends and allies. To begin answering that need, the Atlantic Council this spring launched a comprehensive strategy initiative led by our Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security, using a multi-vector approach to developing a strategic framework to guide American foreign policy, irrespective of the outcome of the 2016 elections, a foreign policy led by our interests and the interests of our friends and allies around the world for a better future. The Middle East Strategy Task Force that we announced today 
led by the Rafi Kuri Center for the Middle East, is an element of that larger effort with the specific goal of advancing the strategic collaboration among Americans, among our closest friends and allies in Europe, and among our closest friends and allies in the Middle East about the future of the Middle East. This is not Americans talking to Americans about what others ought to do. This is, uh, this is a multi-stakeholder conversation about what, what uh, those in the Middle East uh, believe their future ought to be and then how do we help them get there. The task force will explore alternative policy approaches and convergences that can lead to the breakthroughs to a more stable and prosperous region. Rarely is the world confronted with challenges more intractable than those in the Middle East today. But I'm equally confident that there's rarely been an initiative better equipped to address those challenges, nor leaders more capable in culti cultivating the right kind of change as we find in this task force. With two of the great foreign policy strategists of our times, Secretary Albright and Mr. Hadley, chairing the project alongside the incredible energy and diplomatic uh, savvy of Frank Ricciardoni and a network of advisors and supporters that spans the globe, I think there's a real opportunity for impact. We certainly are going to give it our best try. It's now my pleasure to invite the task force co-chairs to the stage uh, to kick off the event. Uh, one is an executive, uh, on, uh, a, uh, executive vice president of the board of the Atlantic Council. The other is uh, an honorary director of the Atlantic Council, both dear friends of this organization. Since leaving office, both Secretary Albright and former National Security Advisor Steve Hadley have remained deeply engaged in, in the issues of the Middle East. Uh, Steve serves as the chair of the U.S. Institute of Peace, which has been deeply engaged in trying to mitigate conflict in the region at a national and local levels. He's also chair of RAND's Middle East Board. One of their many bipartisan collaborations since leaving office was a CFR task force on Turkey uh, by uh, uh, collaboration between the two of them. As the chair of the National Democratic Institute uh, and of Partners for a New Beginning, an organization that seeks to build new understanding between the U.S. and the Muslim world, Secretary Albright has been a champion uh, both for political and economic development in the region. Her 2007 book, The Mighty and the Almighty, was a front runner in calling for a reassessment of U.S. strategy toward the world, specifically citing the independence of politics and the region. So Secretary Albright, uh, this stage is yours. I do lack some of Fred's height. Uh, <clears throat> thank you very much, Fred, for your kind words, and, and my thanks to you and the Atlantic Council for bringing us together to examine one of the most complicated and salient issues of our time. And I'm particularly gratified to see so many uh, distinguished members of the Diplomatic Corps uh, in this audience. Uh, your presence here today underscores the global perspective that we want uh, for this project uh, and, our em and <clears throat> our emphasis today on listening to voices from the region reflects our determination to incorporate the views of your citizens in our research. As Fred mentioned, it was last year that Steve Hadley and I began discussing the need for a focused effort to better understand what is happening in the Middle East. And I would like to say what a pleasure it is to work with Steve Hadley on this project and many others. 
Um, the reasons are simple <clears throat> yet compelling, and this is a region of tremendous importance to the United States and to the world, and it's facing a set of overlapping crises unlike any we have witnessed in generations. Policymakers here in Washington have been working around the clock to navigate these crises and protect America's full range of interests. But having both served in the government, Steve and I know how easy it is for the inbox to get overrun. And there is rarely the opportunity to take a step back and consider the deeper issues at hand, to get at the root uh, causes of the crises, and to develop an effective and enduring long-term approach in concert with people from the region. So the important part is to take the time and step back but look forward. That is in part what we hope to accomplish with this bipartisan project. It's an ambitious effort, but we begin in a strong position because we can leverage the considerable resources of the Atlantic Council's Rafiq Hariri Center for the Middle East. And for that reason, I also would very much like to take a moment to acknowledge and thank Mr. Baha Hariri, whose generosity has made this effort possible and who has done so much to advance the causes of progress and peace that were so dear to his father's heart. Thank you so very, very much. Um, I, I would also like to thank the Hariri Center's director and my very dear friend, Ambassador Frank Richardoni, who really has been one of the finest diplomats the United States has had. Thank you, Frank. <clears throat> um, uh, we're all lucky that after a long and distinguished diplomatic career, Frank has chosen to stay involved in the public policy debate, and it's uh, really his vision that has helped shape this into a distinctive and compelling project. And I say that it is distinctive for a few reasons. First, while it will be housed here at the Atlantic Council's Hariri Center, we are engaging with a wide range of think tanks and involving a diverse range of academic experts, foreign policy practitioners, and civil society leaders. We've established five working groups led by experts from Brookings, the Stimson Center, the United States Institute of Peace, as well as an independent researcher. And I would note that two of our working group conveners, Genevieve Abdo and Chris Schroeder, are here with us today. These working groups have already begun to explore their topics, and I'll just list what they include. Security and public order, religion, identity, and countering violent extremism, refugees, recovery, and reconciliation, politics, governance, and state society relations, and economic recovery and revitalization. So you can see that we are fully covering many of the issues that we see as root causes of some of the disruptions and looking at ways to deal with the issues. In the coming months, the working groups will analyze these topics in depth and issue reports which will then feed into a final task force report that will be drafted here at the Hariri Center and reviewed by a distinguished panel of senior advisors. This group of advisors, some of whom are here with us today, include eminent diplomats and experts from the United States, Europe, and most importantly, from the region. In fact, a majority of these advisors are from outside the United States, and that's another thing that I believe makes this project especially distinctive. We're not uh, uh, just going to look how to simply codify the inside the Beltway consensus. 
We want to engage with people on the ground in the region and incorporate their perspectives into everything that we do. And in short, we want to listen more, and listening to voices from the region is what today's event uh, is really about. So with that, let me invite my friend and co-chair, Steve Hadley, to step forward and set the stage for our discussions. Secretary Albright, thank you very much. It's a, it's a pleasure to be with all of you here this afternoon. I want to thank especially Madeline for the opportunity, pleasure, and privilege to work with you once again on one of our uh, bipartisan policy initiatives. It's, uh, it's going to be, I think, an important and, and uh, exciting prospect. Um, what we want to distinguish this project from others is to do is to start with the views, perspectives, and interests of the citizens and leaders in the regions on the problems of the region and the challenges it faces. And for that reason, the theme of today's public event is a view from the region. And we want to start that process, which we hope will address a number of questions that will be the basis of our work. What are the underlying causes of the current crisis in the Middle East? Why have so many countries seen their governments collapse or be overthrown? What explains the rise of extremism in the region? What sort of government would people in the region be willing to support and fight for? What do the people of the region need to do to help resolve the current crisis? And how can the United States, Europe, and the rest of the world help. This isn't your typical panel event today, so let me walk through what's going to happen this afternoon. First, we are going to watch a brief video of on-the-street interviews produced exclusively for this project by Sky News Arabia. Next, we will hear some polling data presentations by Jim Zogby and Mohamed Yunus. And then we will turn to Rabab El Mahdi in Cairo to respond and to participate in our panel. We'll have a brief conversation among the three uh, speakers with Madeleine Albright and myself presiding, and then we will bring our in-house and Twitter audience into the conversation for a Q&A session. So let me first introduce the panel that you will see on this stage after the uh, video. First is James Zogby who has had a four-decade career working on U.S.-Arab relations and bringing an Arab and Arab-American perspective into the Washington policy conversation. He is a managing director of Zogby Research Services, author of the book Arab Voices, and founder of the, American, uh, the Arab American Institute. Next will be Mohammed Yunus, he is the Gallup Organization's subject matter expert on the Middle East and North Africa. His research at Gallup focuses on employment challenges in the Arab world and relations between Muslim-majority and Western societies. And finally, coming from us from, uh, with us from Cairo will be Rabab El Mahdi. She is Associate Professor of Political Science at the American University in Cairo, 
Her research interests cover the areas of state civil society relations, social movements and resistance, and the political economy of social policy. So now, if we may, let us turn to the short video of the on-the-street interviews with citizens in Beirut, Cairo, Ramallah, and Tunis, explaining what future they want for themselves and their country. هدفي انه شلون انه بيئه صالحه ويكونوا اوادم محترمين واعملن حياه كريمه وحياه حلوه وهادئه ومطمئنه ويعيشوا بسلام هذا هدفي وهدف كل بي وكل اهل بعتقد شو بتتمنى لهالبلد وهل ممكن يتحقق تمنيك؟ نتمنى انه خلاص النوايا يكون النوايا صافيه وما نضمر السوء للغير ابدا هالمواطنين كنا بدنا نعيش بسقف واحد تحت سقف واحد اذا هدينا ركن من اركان هالسقف هذا رح ينزل على الجميع ما في كلنا من جميع طوائفنا جميع الطوائف المطلوب انه نتكتل نحن لحمايه الوطن وردع هالمصايب يلي عم تجي من برا لعنا شو هدفك بالحياه ومعقول يتحقق يعني هدفي مثل هدف كل الشباب انه الاستقرار لقدام شوي يعني يصير عندي شقه يصير عندي سياره ويتحسن وضعي يعني الاهداف اجمالا بالماديات المفروض بتتحقق يعني بصراحه طيب شو شو اللي بتتمناه لبلدك وهل معقول يتحقق يعني بنتمنى يحل السلام والاستقرار والهدوء والناس تصير تحب بعضها اكثر وهلا النزعه النزعه الطائفيه يعني تهدى شوي طيب شو هدفك بالحياه ومعقول يتحقق؟ هدفي ينجح معقول يتحقق شو بتتمنى لبلدك لبنان المعايشه؟ شو اللي بيمنع انه يتحقق؟ يعني ال إنه يكون في عدل ويمنع إنه يتحقق إنه كل الناس تهمها السياسة تونس ما ثم حتى طموح ما ثمش خدمة ما ثمش حتى شيء اللي يقرأ ويوصل الحاجة اللي هو باش يخدم فيها في اللي يقراها عمره كله واحد ما ثمش خدمة يبطل ويوصل عملية حتى الانتحار ولا يعمل أي حاجة أنا طموح نتاعي يا خويا نخرج من تونس وخويا ديجا خرجت مرتين ما سهلش ربي ما ثم حد شيء شنو باش تخدم؟ عندي يعني رؤية ملي صغير حاجات نحب نوصلها أما كل نهار تزيدوا في تونس تحب الهدف ماشي يبعد ماشي يبعد عليك أنت عندك في قرارة نفسك حاجات تحب توصل لها أما كل نهار تزيد تعيش وتحس أنا الأهداف ماشية وتبع والله خاطر في تونس بعد الثورة الفقير زاد فقر واللي لابس زاد طار الحمد لله مستورين صاحبي أما فما عباد يعني كنت تشوف يعني في تونس ما ما عادش حتى ما عادش خلط على شيء، سيرتو بعد الثورة راني نحكي لك، قبل كنا شوي شوي، أما مش بيدينا نحن البيور خير، بيدينا يعني الناس اللي شد السلطة والسياسيين، مش نحن نجموا نتحكموا في شنو تكون يعني تونس في المستقبل. 
ما اثر بالسلبي على المعيشه اليوميه في لهنا ولا في البلدان العربيه الكل وارتفاع المعيشه كشوفهم يوم كيفاش وصلت للطوب في جميع انحاء البلدان العربيه اون صفر وكيفاش مش يجيك سايح وبلاد مش امنه يجيك يقول لك يعني في قلب العاصمه هكا صارت هذه يعني كيفاش يعني مش نمشي بوق اخرى ما فيهاش يعني بقل يخاف بيان سور يخاف شو تتحدث يعني شو شو الرسالة اللي ممكن توصلها يوم كشعب أمريكي اللي هم بينقوا بنفسهم عن مشاكل وقضايا الشرق الأوسط أنا بحكي لهم نقطة مهمة جدا إحنا كثير شفنا من المشاريع اللي نفذت بدعم من الشعب الأمريكي هم في فلسطين هذا بالنسبة لنا كثير كويس إحنا بنتأمل إنه يكون في تفاعل أكثر من الشعب الأمريكي مع الشعب الفلسطيني ويتعرف على الإشكاليات اللي بتعرض لها أو نتيجة الاحتلال ونتيجة كل ذلك ويعرف إنه الشعب الفلسطيني تواق للسلام لأن يعيش بأمن وأمان كغيره شو الإشي اللي ممكن عمله لتتجاوز هاي العقبات؟ انت على مستوى شخصي لتحقيق امنياتك. يعني العمل يعني الشغل، احب اشتغل وانجز اشوف حياتي شو بتتمني لبلدك؟ لوطني غير انه الاستقلال، التنميه، انما كل الاحلام اللي كنا نحلمها كيف يكون وطننا حر. ايه هدفك في الحياه؟ والله بشتغل في قطاع السياحه بقالي اكثر من 10 سنين بس طبعا شفت انت ظروف البلد والدنيا السياحه صفر في السياحه خالص فاهمني؟ وزي ما انت شايف البلد واقفه ثانيه شوف هدفك يعني انت عايز تعمل ايه في المستقبل؟ طيب ما ايه الحاله واقفه انت هتعمل ايه بقى ولا نفسك تبقى ايه؟ بالنسبه للمستقبل يعني الواحد يتمنى ان البلد تتحسن شويه والدنيا تتظبط شويه لان هي ما هترجع ان شاء الله ترجع مع كله كله هيشتغل وكله هيبقى تمام والواحد ممكن مثلا حتى لو الواحد مثلا ما بيعش بتاع السياحه ممكن يقدر يعمل مشروع ينجح انما في الوقت الحالي حتى لو انت فتحت مشروع يعني ايدك على قلبك ممكن يعني ظروف البلد ما لما بتبقى واقفه واقفه مع الناس كلها في كل حاجه في كل في اي قطاع فنتمنى ان الدنيا تتحسن شويه ايه اهداف حضرتك في المستقبل؟ حاجات تخصصي ان انا ان انا شغاله في مراكز الشباب ان احنا نقعد مراكز الشباب وان احنا نحاول ان احنا نطور نشوف التطورات الاكثر فيها لان هي دلوقتي تعتبر اه في شغل من الوزاره كتير وكده لكن احنا كجوه المركز ممكن مش نكون بنطبق الاكاديميات اللي هي موجوده في الوزاره احنا بنحاول ننشر في المركز اما في شغلي الخاص فانا بشتغل مدرب مهارات خاصه فبحاول ان شاء الله ان انا ابقى فيها لقدام احسن شايفه ان انت ممكن تحققي الهدف ده؟ اه طبعا بالذات الفتره ديت ان احنا بنحاول الدنيا بدات تتحرك ازاي الاول بقى في مؤسسات مدنيه كتير على ارض الواقع اكتر وان ناس كتيره جدا دلوقتي بتحاول تساعد غير الحكومه الحكومه في اطار اللي هي الحكومه بتعمل اللي عليها بس مش بالشكل اللي هو اللي بره بتعمل اللي جوه اكتر او اللي بره اكتر اما احنا اللي جوه الشغل بتهيالي ان الجمعيات والشغل الخاص بقى احسن بكتير ومفتوح عن الايام اللي فاتت ايه هدفك الاسمى في الحياه حاجات كتير بس لو قلنا حاجة واحدة بس ممكن نقول تمكين الشباب اللي بتنادي بيه الدولة بقالها عايز اقول 30 40 50 سنة وبنادي بيه اكتر دلوقتي هو ده اللي بحبه. شايف ان ممكن يتحقق؟ اه لانه موجود فعلا بس بخطوات لازم يعني هي دلوقتي صغيرة لو خدنا خطوات اكبر شوية بتفعيل اكتر اه هنوصل والشباب موجود عشان بس بنسمع نغمة كتير من المسؤولين انه في شباب وفي الشباب او في الشباب قادر لا في شباب قادر موجود لو ضربت هتلاقي بسيطة ما 
ايه هدفك الاسمى في الحياه؟ يعني نفسك تحقق والله ان ان احنا نبقى شعب شايف ان احنا ممكن نوصل للهدف ده؟ ممكن لو كل واحد حاول يعمل اللي عليه ويجتهد اكتر، يعني لو كل واحد عرف ايه الحقوق اللي عليه وايه الواجبات اللي لازم يعملها وعملها هنوصل، عشان احنا شعب احنا عندنا احنا عندنا اللي ياهلنا واللي يمكننا ان احنا نعمل ده، بس المشكله ان احنا مش 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 بنعمل كده، احنا مكسلين عايزين حد يحركنا، احنا جوهره بس على شويه تراب، عايزين اللي يمسح التراب ده عشان نمسح Let me express our thanks again to Sky News Arabia for uh, pulling that together. And uh, let me invite the panelists and Secretary Albright to come to the stage and take their seats. So let's start, if we might, with Jim, Jim Zogby. Uh, thanks, Steve. And thank you, Madeline. And thanks yeah. to the uh, Atlanta Council for, for hosting this. I'm going to think I'm going to sit here and do this rather than get to the, uh, to the podium. Let me begin by, by, by saying that what you saw uh, is validated in all the polling we've done. Remember when we first did our poll after 9-11, there was questions, what, what Arabs think? What do they want? Where, where are they going? And we did a wide-ranging poll published in a book called um, uh, Arabs, uh, Arab, What Arabs Think, Beliefs, Concerns, and Values. And what we found was that contrary to the myth that they go to bed at night hating Israel, wake up in the morning hating America, and spend the day in the mosque hearing some preacher teach them to hate a little bit more, that they actually went to bed at night thinking about their kids and woke up in the morning worried about their jobs and spent the day working real hard trying to get a better life. I mean, their values and their concerns stacked up pretty much with what anybody, man on the street in America, would say they want with their lives. Uh, they want to prosper. They want to take care of their kids. They want to make sure that when they get old, somebody's going to be there for them. Um, we've reviewed for this project our polling over the last 15 years. And, and uh, basically, I, I guess what I can say is that I found that to some degree, people are confounded in the region about the changes that are taking place and how to respond. And they're also conflicted, in particular conflicted about the United States. Uh, I remember after 9-11, there was this notion that, oh, why do they hate us? They hate us because they hate our values. So we polled in the region. And what we found was that they actually like our values, and they like our freedom and democracy. They like our education system, our television programs, and et cetera. They don't like the way we treat them. Um, and so. Uh, they reacted to that by, when asked the question, how do you feel about America? They say, we don't like America. We don't like America because, one guy said in an interview post-polling, he said, I feel like a jilted lover. I, I like America, but I don't think America likes me. Look at what they do to us. Move forward to 2009. We did a, a survey um, of uh, obstacles in the region. What did people think were the biggest problems that they faced? The two problems were the Israel-Palestine conflict 
and US interference in the region. Issues of democracy and economic inequality, um, even strife caused by religion didn't even factor much at all. Toward the end of that year and into the beginning of the next year, 2010, we did a poll that we do very often. We ask a series of 11 issues and we ask people to rank them in terms of priority. In almost every country, the top issues were healthcare and employment and education. Um, and a couple of um, issues, uh, terrorism ranks uh, a bit high in some, corruption and nepotism in others. But those three, uh, healthcare, education, and employment are top priorities almost everywhere, and Israel-Palestine factors in as well. It's an existential question almost in the Arab world. Interesting that questions dealing with democracy and reform of government didn't make it into the top tier at all. It wasn't a priority issue for the, uh, the people that we polled in every country. We asked then um, about what they wanted America to do, what they thought America could be helpful with. And again, it was employment, education, and healthcare, and Israel and Palestine. Those were the issues. Issues of democracy and reform of government, et cetera, weren't there. Not unlike if you were to ask Americans during our gun control debate whether we thought it'd be a good idea to bring the Brits over to help us figure it out or, or bring the Canadians and the Swedes in to help us with healthcare reform. People didn't want people meddling in their internal affairs. Skip forward to 2014, we asked the very same questions again, top priorities, and as you can see again, Israel, Palestine, and US interference were the two issues that people thought were the most destabilizing in their region. Um, and yet, given that, when we, uh, uh, well, no, let me, let me go to this first. The top issues were resolving the Arab-Israeli conflict in 2014 and Syria. Almost scant mention was about Iran and the nuclear program with Iran. But look at this. When we asked people how important was the challenge versus how effective was the US response, this is what they said about Israel-Palestine. This is what they said about ending the conflict in Syria. Really important, but the US response limited. Now, the nuclear program with Iran not a factor at all, and yet that's how effective we were. So in other words, we were good at doing what they didn't really care much about and not good at doing what they cared most about. Importance of your country, however, maintaining good relations with the US, very important in almost every country that we poll, but how effective is the US at maintaining good relations with your country? We get credit for trying, not very effective, but we're, we're trying at it, which is actually not a bad sign, better than the other way. Um, uh, let's look at a couple of individual issues. Syria, for example. What the, are the policies that the US should pursue in Syria? Humanitarian uh, aid for refugees, pursuing negotiations, and leaving Syria alone. Look at the blue, leaving Syria alone in almost every country, a top issue. What we, they didn't want us to do was airstrikes, direct involvement, and weapons to the opposition. This is what I mean by the conflicted and confounded issue. Syria is important. They want Syria resolved. They want the US involved to help provide some leadership on it, but they don't want us to do any of those things, in part because they don't trust the judgments that we make, given our past experience in the region. Conflict in Syria contributed to an increase in sectarian, yes, very dramatically so. Uh, impact of Syrian refugees, very dramatic in every country. 
both on the country's security and on the country's economy. In the conflict in Syria, who do they side with? Well, look, I mean, it's interesting to note that in, um, uh, in every country, in every Arab country, it's with the opposition, except in Lebanon, where there's a, there's a, a, a division. And, and in Iran, uh, Turkey, on the other hand, was interesting because it was the one country where Jebhat Nusra and, uh, um, and the, the other Syrian opposition groups uh, did, did very well. Uh, and also in, in Iraq, it was the same. Then look at Syria, the worst outcome. What would be the worst outcome? In almost every country, the worst outcome added together was um, the country being partitioned or, or fragmenting and or Bashar al-Assad staying in, in power. Um, Iraq, the best outcome for the future. Most uh, of Iraq's neighbors want Iraq to stay whole uh, and do not want Iraq to fragment. Um, is ISIS a threat to your country? Uh, a very grave threat in most of the, the neighboring countries where we polled. Um, but do they support the Western-led military intervention to combat ISIS? Only in Turkey, where there was a significant majority, and in Iraq, where opinion was divided, but still a slight majority in favor. In every other country, opposition to that. I conclude. They know what they want. They don't know how to get there. They know that the US is a valuable participant in the region, but they are not confident enough to have the US play the leadership role uh, that oftentimes the US wants to play or feels it ought to play. And so conflicted and confounded is how I'd conclude, and a little lacking in confidence as well. Thank you, Jim, very much. Mohammed Yunus? Right. I'm going to change it up here and come stand over here a little bit, let you folks see my slides as I show them. Uh, thank you so much for uh, including us. It's obviously an honor for Gallup to be part of this initiative. Um, I took a different approach uh, than Dr. Zogby because he has uh, very interesting sort of topical information uh, using public opinion research. I figured I'd take the more longitudinal approach uh, to give you a little bit of a contrast of what Gallup has learned uh, polling in this region since 2005 uh, on some topical issues, but mostly on issues we're also polling the entire world on and, and look at some of the comparisons. I'll tell you a little bit uh, about our tool. Um, it, actually, in response to a, a very off-the-cuff remark by Secretary Rumsfeld uh, in 2001, believe it or not, about the inability to pull Afghans on the Afghan invasion, our CEO was actually watching the press conference and thought to himself, why can't we start polling Afghans on the Afghan uh, US invasion? So in 2001, we started a process of working with stakeholders, starting to build our capacity globally, running several pilot projects uh, uh, in the region, and really, uh, uh, finalizing our, our survey tool. Um, in 2005 and, and forward is really where a lot of the data uh, that I'll be sharing with you comes from and a lot of the learnings that I mentioned that I may not have slides for uh, have come from. The first really important uh, lesson that we've learned, uh, and really this started after the Arab Spring in terms of us looking back, but this is a metric we, as you will see, have been gathering far before, is leaders were sort of following the wrong metrics or, or not following enough of the right ones. Um, and I'll, I'll give you an example here uh, in a second. But what we ask at Gallup, and one very important question is asking people how their own lives are doing. Um, on a scale from 0 to 10, where you tell, uh, ask the respondent to evaluate their current life, and then evaluate where they think their life will be in five years from today. Uh, if they respond with a 7 or higher for today and an 8 or higher for their life in five years, Gallup places them in what is called the thriving category. Um, if they rate their lives at a four or below today and in five years, 
they're placed into what is called the suffering category. So what I'll be showing you on the next several slides are, is actually the rate of those who fall into the thriving category in several countries. But back to the following the right metrics. Um, Egypt, GDP per capita, um, it looks still until today, it looks very promising. Uh, at the time uh, of 2010, 2009, even 2000, beginning of, you know, getting over the 2011 World Economic Forum is giving Egypt and Tunisia recognition, bumping them up in the rankings, uh, competitiveness in doing business is improving. A lot of the macroeconomic indicators and some of the economic reforms had started to take place and, and, and things looked very positive. When you ask the Egyptians how they felt about what was going on in Egypt, this is what you found. And this is a, 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 a trend, uh, this incoherence or cognitive dissonance, if you will, between GDP per capita and a lot of other macroeconomic metrics and how people are actually rating their lives. We saw this almost similar uh, uh, graph in Tunisia, in Bahrain, in Syria, and of course here in Egypt. You'll actually notice that the first dip is not the Arab Spring. The first dip is what? It's the spike in wheat prices in 2008, 2009. So when we come around the Arab Spring, Egyptians were already registering that something was going very wrong in their world, in their economy, on their expectations, but not a lot of people were picking up on it. Just to show you that it's not just a Middle East phenomenon. So I mentioned sort of several of the high-hitting countries in terms of instability throughout the region and what we saw. Let's look at Ukraine, and I thought this would be particularly interesting because we're, of course, at the Atlantic Council. It's GDP per capita in Ukraine. Let's look at how Ukrainians have been rating their lives. So you see that you know, it, it, there's certainly something there. Now, I need to be very clear. I'm not claiming that this is a predictor for instability. Um, and I'm not claiming that there's any kind of causal relationship between stability of these variables or, or the variables in each other. We're just saying that something's going on. And there are a lot more metrics that we have learned uh, to follow very closely beyond just the top line uh, GDP or other metrics, rankings that we are used to. To give you a positive example, it's not all negative. On the positive side, here's Colombia. This is, I think, uh, the desired outcome for most countries, certainly a much more healthy relationship between the macroeconomic realities and how people are evaluating their lives. Just for context, in Egypt, leading up to 2011, the only people whose life evaluation scores were improving were the top 10 percentile in income, which is not a surprise to many of us who are familiar with the country. So I want to look at thriving and life evaluation from a different perspective now and examine some of the acute conflicts, at least just two, that we have unfolding in the region. Instead of showing you a thriving rate percentage, I want to show you the average numeric score of a country on that scale from 0 to 10, both today and in five years. Let's take a look at Syria. This is how Syrians have been laying their lives uh, in our study. I should mention that in 2013, due to the security situation, we had to exclude Homs and Khunaitra governance. Um, that reduced our sample to representing, uh, we lost about 9 to 10% of the population, to put it sort of more, more simply. Um, in addition to that, we had to substitute at least a quarter of our PSUs within the same areas, but to different locations based on the security situation. But nonetheless, you see that life today in Syria continues to be uh, just horribly rated and declining. Interesting that that hope seems to somehow be holding on. Um, we did do a series of topical uh, uh, polls with Syrians about when they thought the, the conflict would end and, and, and various uh, kind of aspects on where things were going. Most of them did not see it ending soon. This was in 2013. Um, so maybe have changed since then. But life evaluation clearly reflecting the reality for Syrians on the ground. 
Here's Yemen. And again, uh, uh, clearly, Yemenis knew something was going on with their country before a lot of us were following them in the headlines. And it really drives home the point that as leaders, as policymakers, uh, whether you're leading Yemen or, or somebody who's leading a country trying to help Yemen, these metrics become absolutely essential to understanding what is really underlying uh, the changes that are taking place here. Bread and butter issues. Um, I was very hesitant to either title this subject bread and butter issues, uh, uh, the greater jihad, or it's the bread and butter issues stupid. But it depends on sort of what side of the aisle you want, you want to sit on. But since this is a bipartisan effort, I figured I'd just leave it as bread and butter issues and let people decide. But on a serious note, um, it, one of the underlying premises of this task force, which I very wholly agree with, is the idea that movements like ISIS are actually um, a symptom and not a cause. And if that's the case, what I would argue is that to understand the cause is actually to address the issues that they capitalize on, the grievances that they very effectively use to get people to either ideologically support them, or even if not ideologically support them, what we see in Iraq, people to feel like they're relatively a better alternative uh, than the other choices they have. So let's jump into some of these issues. Um, one of the things that we have asked, we ask all over the world and asked in the Middle East is in the last 12 months, was there a time, have there been times when you did not have enough money to buy food for your family that you and your family needed? And I wanted to compare Latin America and the post-Soviet Eurasia countries uh, on these items because uh, Dr. Steve Grant, who's with us here today, um, in his book, which I, I very much uh, agree with, drives home the point that a big miss for us, uh, us being the US sort of policy world since 9-11 uh, uh, even and, and the Arab Spring is that we've lost the ability to really compare and look at other countries that have made it across the world. So establishing democracy is not something we're trying to invent in the Middle East. Um, improving economies is not something that we're trying to do for the first time ever. There are actually other parts of the world that have seen a relative amount of success. What lessons learned from those other parts of the world can be applied to the Middle East? Certainly not all of them, but maybe some of them. Not enough money for food. There's the post-Soviet Eurasia countries making significant progress on that item. Here's the Middle East. That is the median average of Middle East countries. This includes the GCC um, and many countries that have no issue whatsoever, relatively speaking, or for most people, with access to food. So you see an increasing trend of concern on that front. Payroll to population. Gallup measures employment um, about four to six ways, depending on the surveys uh, you're talking about. Our most useful metric has been payroll to population. This is respondents 15 and older who work at least 30 hours for an employer for pay. Here is Latin America and the Caribbean. Obviously, post-Soviet Eurasia would be a little higher, as expected. There's the Middle East. Basically, no progress since the Arab Spring on the regional level. Does this, is this a story everywhere? Absolutely not. We, have, we had a great conversation over lunch about sort of Dubai, UAE, for example, uh, being there are pockets that are exceptions to this reality. But in terms of really delivering on the jobs issue in the region, we've quite frankly seen a lot of talk and very little in the way of delivery. Do you feel safe walking alone at night? This has been a huge issue in the countries that did see uprisings. So again, the Middle East median average, there's Egypt with a serious collapse uh, during the Arab Spring and then a significant rebound. Um, the Egypt wave here in 2014 was actually three weeks after President Sisi assumed office. It's an important kind of fact to keep in mind when you look at the Egypt data. 
There is Iraq, Jordan, Lebanon, and Tunisia there at the end. Safe walking alone at night, something that has very much dramatically shifted in the countries, particularly where we saw any kind of uprising, protests, unrest. Corruption in government. Is corruption widespread throughout the government in this country or not? Middle East, flat at 70, almost no improvement or decline. There is Egypt, and we actually used to ask this question in a different way, but I wanted to use the most recent data for you here. Significant, uh, at least, expectation that things will improve in that last reading of 2014, but consistently on, on, on government and corruption in business, Egypt is consistently one of the highest, not a surprise. Iraq, surprisingly, a little bit of improvement. Lebanon and Tunisia, apologize. Tunisia there at the end. Desire to emigrate, um, one of the issues that unfortunately has remained with us and was actually referenced in the video that we just saw. When we ask respondents, ideally, if you had the opportunity, would you like to move permanently to another country or would you prefer to move, uh, excuse me, or would you prefer to continue living in this country? So right now we're looking at the percent of those who said, no, I would like to move. I'd like to leave my country permanently. There is the MENA median average. There's Egypt. Iraq, Tunisia, significant improvement in Tunisia, significant hope of people maybe seeing things improving and, and not having to sort of run away from a bad situation. Jordan and Lebanon at the very end. But think about this. Until now, 15 to 30% of respondents in this country, this is pretty reflective of almost everywhere except the GCC countries in the region, 15 to 30% want to get out. They want to leave. Um, the Steve Jobs, the, the, the Zuckerbergs, the Mohammed Al-Aryans, all of these people, a lot of them are still trying to leave. And I think a, 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 one thing for this task force to consider is in terms of sustainable policy, until you can, number one, stop that ph phenomenon from taking place, but equally important, I think, for the US, number two, connect with the expats all over the world that are leaving these countries and succeeding that actually want to improve things in their own country. How do we form a strategy to not necessarily politicize, but at least connect those networks and communities of expats that are very serious about wanting to give something back and uh, don't necessarily see uh, as bleak of a future, maybe, or as security-focused a lens of a future for the region as some of us in this city tend to. I wanted to just share very few slides from Iraq because I think uh, our latest polling there really demonstrates what happens when societies lose faith in local and national institutions and how movements like ISIS and others really effectively capitalize on them. This is that same thriving rate I shared with you at the very beginning of this presentation. This is Iraq broken into ISIL-held areas, disputed areas, Baghdad, Iraqi Kurdistan, and southern Iraq. So here I am using, it's based obviously a proxy or dummy categories for the regions of the country, but Baghdad, predominantly Shia, slightly predominantly Shia, and southern Iraq, overwhelmingly Shia, are the only two regions where we've seen thriving come back since that disastrous September 13 reading uh, as Maliki was sort of in the full thrust of his uh, approach at governance. Um, Iraqi Kurdistan, and the disputed areas, ISIL-held territories, still much, much lower in their thriving rates since September 20, 2013 through December 2014. To jot your memory, 
August is when uh, uh, Prime Minister Haider al-Abedi took over. June, July is sort of when Mosul uh, went to ISIS. So this is six months uh, after uh, Prime Minister al-Abedi is in office and still thriving rates pretty low in non-Shia areas. Let's look at confidence in the military. Again, a similar dynamic where the Shia majority areas, excuse me, Baghdad and southern Iraq, seen significant improvement, some improvement in the disputed areas. But again, ISIL held and Iraqi Kurdistan, still some pretty significant loss of confidence in the military. You'll notice that very last is the total, the national average. And you'll notice on this slide, and I should have showed you the previous slide, it almost tells you nothing. Because there's not a lot of fluctuation on that, on that level of analysis. But when you look locally, you see a lot. Confidence in national government, unlike thriving and in national institutions like the military, we did see a significant bounce back in the political uh, appetite, if you will, in giving the new prime minister a chance. In Iraq, do you have confidence in each of the following? How about the national government? Confidence shot pretty significantly back up December of 2014. Do you disapprove or approve of the way prime minister, in this case, Nouri al-Maliki, is handling his job as uh, prime minister? This is September 2013. 13% of people in Iraqi Kurdistan approved of Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki's job uh, uh, performance. May 2014, even worse, to a point where barely a majority in Baghdad and only a majority in the South approved of Prime Minister al-Maliki's approach at governance. And very promisingly, I think, at least initially, in December of 2014, a huge resurgence of at least a chance for this new political leader to strike a new page. What I would challenge us to think about is how much should we stake as policymakers on these very fleeting approvals, disapprovals, versus how much should we stake as policymakers on addressing thriving and the underlying bread and butter issues? My argument would be we're a lot better off focusing on those issues. Perhaps we have to deal with these issues. But so much of our RPMs, if you will, as Washington, tends to be focused on this part. A lot less tends to be focused on the other part. So using the right metrics, bread and butter issues, and Iraq as an example. Thank you. Mohammed, thank you so much. Uh, I would now like to turn to Rabab El-Mahdi, who has been waiting patiently in a studio in Cairo, and it's fairly late in the evening, uh, her time. Um, and what I'd like to do is ask you, if you would, Rabab, to tell us your own views about what public opinion is right now in the region. What are citizens in the region thinking about right now? And how does it line up with what you've just heard here and what we have seen in terms of the polling data? Rabab, are you with us? Yes, I am. I am, Steve. Hi Hello, everyone. Um, so, I mean, it would be audacious uh, for me to sit here and just, you know, tell you, you know, what every citizen in the region uh, believes. But I would say, in general, that I didn't hear anything um, today that uh, comes across as completely, you know, unacceptable or something that I have not seen through my interactions or my studies or my political activism. Uh, so I tend, overall, I tend to agree with the picture that was painted uh, by James and Mohammed. Um, having said that, I think there is a, a number of points uh, that I would like uh, to reiterate. Um, one of them is that we are not freaks of nature. 
Right. So basically, just like James said, and um, just like the, the person who came up um, first in the video said, we are just normal human beings. Um, we eat, we think, we want to have fun, we make love, just like anyone else anywhere in the world. So I think the idea of cultural specificity, that there is something wrong or exceptional about th this region, needs to be uh, rethought. I thought this was the case with the Arab Spring, right? The, you know, with all the euphoria about all those uh, young people going out and seeking freedom and dignity and social justice, that there was an understanding that they're just like everyone else. But unfortunately, with the turn of events, we went back to addressing uh, citizens of the Middle East and the Arab world in particular as you know, some form of irrational actors who tend to have very strange choices, either of the dictatorship, religious, or military, who just hate the US, uh, so on and so forth. And I think anything that we see in the public opinion, once we analyze it, it becomes completely clear how this is a rational um, reaction to their own experiences, right? So when people are given a choice between, uh, or have to make a choice between their personal safety and their freedom, between the safety of their children and being able uh, to live in a democracy, they rationally, they tend to choose their own personal safety. And that's just, you know, a human instinct. The idea is not those choices they make, it's understanding what circumstances we put them in in order for them to have to make a choice between issues of bread and butter on one hand or security on the one hand and democracy and freedom and dignity on the other hand. Uh, the other thing uh, that I think uh, we need to understand about public opinion in the region um, nowadays um, and for a few years to come is that this is a state of flux. Things are changing so fast. And the, the idea that you know, the US administration or any administration or even regimes from the region uh, to focusing on stability and governability, I think this is the wrong bet. The idea is to question at what cost is stability or governability being brought about. The idea is to think about the governmentality the only way forward for this region is to have a kind of stability that, that does not come at the expense of people's dignity, their freedom, and their bread and butter issues. Um, the, the other thing I want to comment on, um, and this was um, made in, um, in Steve's introduction, the idea of thinking about what's going on in the region in terms of a crisis. This is not a crisis or a series of crises. This is a historic transformation. And historic transformations, as we have seen in Europe in the you know, 18th and 19th century, up until the mid-20th century, and in the US, those kinds of historic transformations are messy, they take a long time, and they need to run their course. 
So the idea that they can be addressed or that we can you know, um, seek mechanic conclusions between what people think today and accordingly, how we address this. So if we, if we look at Egypt, for example, and we see a poll or in the region in general saying that democracy is not a priority, and that bread and butter issues is the priority. This should not fool us into thinking that people do not uh, care about freedom and dignity, because democracy is a means to an end. So yes, if, if their dignity or freedom will not come through a particular system or a particular regime, they are very well aware that they need to seek it elsewhere. This does not mean that they have, quote unquote, a different set of values. There are universal values that people of this region, no one wants to be beaten up in a police station. That's what human dignity translates um, into. The, the people who left their jobs to stand in front of uh, polling stations throughout the region since 2011 are scenes that we've never seen before. Those are people, when they were given a choice to seek out freedom properly, that they opted and they actually risked much more than standing in lines. They risked their own lives. So, Thinking that, you know, in terms that there's a ladder of priorities, you know, those people need to be fed uh, first and then, um, you know, have some religion and then they will be fine because they don't care about freedom. It doesn't work this way. They need a number of things. All of them, at the same time, sometimes they prioritize uh, the urgent needs of survival, hence, you know, their <coughs> security or their um, bread and butter issues, but that for, for them is not because they tend to uh, not value freedom or dignity. That's because sometimes, most often, they are pushed to having um, to make uh, such a choice. Um, the final thing um, that I, I want to comment on, and then uh, we can go to, to questions, is the focus on um, on procedural versus uh, you know strategic issues. I think if we con conceive of what's going on in the region as a crisis, and accordingly the urgency of asking people questions about procedural matters, such as you know, do you want elections or don't you want elections? Do you want the U.S. Uh, to intervene in Syria or not to? I think we're missing the point because. In those transformations, the important issues are much more structural and strategic. They're not just procedural and technical. The idea is not to give them uh, elections. The idea is to make sure that there is an environment that will lead to a political system that reflects their choices, that will be responsive. Elections become a means to this. Same thing with the issue of Syria. Intervention or no intervention, I think, misses the point, because that's a technical issue. That's a procedural issue. That's for people you know, uh, in the policy-making world to decide. But this decision should be based on a more in-depth 
understanding of what's going on. The idea is not to put forward elections or have um, an airstrike in order to momentarily solve a crisis. The idea is to guarantee enough conducive circumstances to allow the people in this region to work for what they have been striving for for years. And the idea that they shouldn't, I think um, most of the people I talk to and I work with, including even the person who runs that venue that I'm in um, today, they've made huge sacrifices for what they saw as a better future coming with uh, you know, the Arab Spring. This guy has lost his job and started this small business. Um, and they, they're ready to make those sacrifices. But up until a point where, where they can see, first of all, that, that you know, it's, it's even risking their lives is OK, but as long as they can see a future. Unfortunately, both um, regional powers and international powers have put the majority of citizens of this region in a position whereby they have to become more apathetic because they lost all faith that there can be a, f a better future, that they need, some of them need uh, to resort uh, to violence and extremism. Whereas our point of remedy was the hope that came with the Arab uh, Spring and that was completely shattered. And hence, from the euphoria that I have uh, felt you know, for a couple of years after uh, 2011, I think what the polls and the presentations uh, of today are missing is uh, a feeling of uh, despair and intense frustration that the citizens of this region um, are feeling. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, that was extremely helpful. And I think it showed the power of mixing, pulling data, and then anecdotal data. Because, uh, Rabab, you helped, I think, us to understand how, in the polling data, democracy and freedom could be a low priority in the face of security or bread and butter issues. But as you point out, that does not mean that it is not an important element of where the people in the region want to go. It is a question of priorities and responding to the circumstances in which they find themselves. So I, I think we're off to a terrific start in terms of trying to get some input and appreciation from the region. And I think also this mixing of the anecdotal and the polling is a very powerful tool. And we will try to use that in the course of the study. We're a little bit uh, running behind time-wise. We have a, a firm 4 o'clock uh, stop. And what I'd like to propose to do is rather than conducting a, a dialogue within the panel, I would like to turn to Secretary Albright and give her a moment uh, to comment on what she has heard. And then I think we'll go right uh, to the audience uh, and uh, to our Twitter followers and get as many questions in as we can before the four o'clock stop. So Madeline, do you want to comment for a moment on what you've heard? Well, first of all, it, it truly was interesting. And I made a lot of different notes. And we have a lot to look at. I think the question for our task force, however, is to look at the data and then try to figure out how we approach the longer term part, since a lot of the issues have to do 
with immediate polling and the question in terms of security, uh, jobs, et cetera, and look a little bit at, and, and I'd just make this suggestion, is uh, there's a paradox here. They, we want to know what they want to do and how they can act. And uh, they, to some extent, want us to have the United States do something, but they don't particularly like some of the things we do. So that there are, for the US, damned if you do, damned if you don't. I think that what is worth looking at, and I have done an awful lot of polling in Eastern Europe at a time immediately after the fall of the wall. And it was very, very similar to what you were talking about, thriving versus suffering, and how people see their own personal situation versus what's going on in the country. So I would be interested, we don't have to get an answer now, in who you actually poll. What is the age group? What are their jobs? Because one of the things we found in Eastern Europe was that it really made a difference. And it has a lot to what Rabab has to say, whether you're, quote, somebody who, I always hate this term, an intellectual versus somebody who is a worker has a very different approach to this and kind of uh, dividing that up. But the other part here that I think we need to know is to what extent the people in the country know that this is up to them, that we can provide suggestions. But I think we really need to figure out. Um, and ultimately, the institutional development, I think, uh, is important. As somebody who heads a democratic institute, I find it hard to think that democracy is not important. But democracy has to deliver. People want to vote and eat. And part of the issue is lack of faith in institutions. And I stole this statement from somebody, but I use it because of the role of social media. What has happened is people are talking to their governments on 21st century technology from Tahrir Square. Uh, the government hears them on 20th century technology and is providing 19th century responses. And so there is no confidence in the institutions, and yet institutions need to be built in order to be able to deliver the jobs, education, and health care. Can I just make a point about the, the very briefly, because we do need to go to the, questions. Uh, that Jim. people have toward their lives. We've been asking what, what I like to call the Reagan questions. Are you better off than you were? Yeah. Uh, do you think you're going to be better off in the next few years? Are your children going to be better off than you? And are you better off than your parents? Uh, then we ask a right track, wrong track question. We've got that data over the last 15 years in all the countries. And it's fascinating. It tracks, Mohammed, some of what you say. But, um, but, uh, but it's, it's an interesting way of looking at people and then looking at the demographics within um, and we can largely find not a big shift among the different age groups or gender groups. Interesting. Um, if there's hope in the country, it's widespread. If there's a lack of hope, it seems to be widespread across right. the demographic groups. I think one of the things we might do, if you, the two of you are willing, is to have a dialogue with you about other data you have sure. that might be relevant. And secondly, if there are questions that we can formulate or maybe come from our working groups, that we would like to commend to you that you might go out on in the next couple months that would help us drill down on some of the things we've learned today. Mm -hmm. That would be a wonderful part uh, in parallel track to the work of the working yeah. groups and a contribution to the studies. But we can go to that uh, and talk about that uh, as a follow-up to this conference. So let me open the floor for questions from the audience and via Twitter. Uh, Jessica Ashu, I think, is somewhere here who is our Twitter, a source of Twitter questions. There she is. I will look to Jessica when we have a Twitter question, and we will put that into the mix. For those of you in the hall here, I know it's a little dark. If you would raise your hand, I will hopefully see it. 
Um, and after you are acknowledged, please wait for the mic. We have microphones which will be, come to you from the sides. Would you state your name and affiliation? And I would ask both the questioners and responders to be brief um, and, and to the point, because we want to try to get as many questions in between now and 4 o'clock as we can. Let me begin with Ambassador Paley. Good afternoon. Lukman Paley, Iraq Ambassador. First of all, let me thank you for such a proactive uh, task. Uh, I think uh, there are a couple of uh, timelines we need to have a better understanding of so that we as ambassadors and others can help. Could you hold the mic sure. closer? I have a little The first here. timeline is I hope that such a discourse and discussion should lead to better enriched discussion with the 2016 elections in the United States. I think it's an important uh, I hope it's an important contribution to define the discourse in when it's the foreign policy and the regional discussion. As, as to the timeline you have for your own project, it's important for us to understand the, the roadmap so that your description versus your prescription of what should take place is for important for us to understand at what stage have you finished with understanding what is describing what's taking place versus the policies and uh, prescribing for it. Yeah. I think that's another issue for us. To, the other point I have is the view of United States of what wants the region versus what the region wants from the United States. Unfortunately, although we are in a, in a global world and, and uh, technology and superhighway and others, I don't think the region still fully understands the dynamics inside the United States. How is that evolving and what the United States sees its own role? So further description of what's taking place in the United States would, might help in at least setting expectations of the region. I think that might be too much a, uh, a task to ask, but I think it's important. Thank you. Uh, I think it's, those are very uh, important points. I think one of the things, though, I would say, Ambassador, we're trying to get in this study, and Madeline, you ought to jump in on this, is it, it gets too much about the United States and the region and what the region wants of the United States and what the United States wants of the region. We think a step back look needs to begin with what the region wants for itself. What is the conversation that is going on in the region? What are their thoughts and expectations of what they want for themselves? That seems to us to be the starting <coughs> point to then have a conversation, well, what might the United States and Europe and other countries be able to do to help, and how to make that, how to do it in a way that is acceptable and positive for the region. So we will get to that interaction, but we really want to start with a better appreciation of what's going on in the region. And we say the region as if it was all one thing, and of course the situations are very different country to country, and that's also something we need to get grounded on as we move towards some recommendations. Thank you very much. Um, in the back there, yes, ma'am. You, uh, you, yes, exactly right. Uh, Amanda Cadillac, Grand Corporation. Speak loudly, it's, there's a lot of uh, ventilator noise back here. Thank uh, you. Amanda Cadillac, Grand Corporation. Um, I have a question for Reba. Um, do you think that the, the the growing anti-ISIS contingent uh, throughout the region would be enough of a basis for the United States to create a relationship with those people or with people on social networks. Um, do you think that that would be lay enough of a groundwork for some more of a, a stronger relationship between the United States and Middle East countries and citizens as well? 
Mohammed, do you want to take that? Um, I think it was for Rabab, but I, I... I'm sorry, Rabab, do you yeah, want to take that, Rabob please? Take that. Thank you. Yeah, sure. Um, I just, um, um, so let, let me first very briefly comment on what Secretary Albright said. I think people in the region are very well aware that they, uh, you know, they are the doers, they are the main actors, and they don't look to the U.S. to bring them, um, to bring them anything. I, I mean, the Arab Spring was not, uh, did not come out of, you know, any kind of U.S. Uh, plan or support. I still remember vividly Secretary Clinton coming on TV on the 26th of January 2011 to say that they think that the Mubarak regime is stable and will be responsive uh, to its people. It was, uh, so it was totally, you know, the plan of this uh, region, the people who knew very well what they wanted. The idea of doomed, if you do doomed, if you don't, I think this has nothing to do with uh, people's uh, perception in the region. This has to do with how this strategically uh, the U.S., for different reasons, has positioned itself as the policeman of the world and, the, you know, a unipolar power and whatnot, and hence this comes uh, you know, it's a status that comes with the um, with the position and with the continuing a asking, you know, of the Christmasness. So, how can the U.S. help? What are we supposed to do? Um, and that's why I, in one of James. Um, um, parts of his presentation, there was, I can't remember which crisis, but there was a part where uh, there was a question about leave us alone in a crisis. That was an option, and, and many people opted for that op option, leave us alone. Uh, so I think the expectations are uh, clearly uh, set. In terms of the anti-ISIS, the question, I don't think that being anti-ISIS is enough. Uh, for people of the region to bond with the U.S. and, uh, and believe, with, uh, believe in the capacity uh, of this administration or the following uh, administration to deliver. Because we can have common enemies, but that doesn't necessarily make us um, friends, right? Uh, plus, I, I mean, there's, uh, there's a lot of... Uh, Talk in the region about you know anti about ISIS uh, being an outcome of uh, different forms of uh, U.S. policy in the past, all the way from the invasion of Iraq to the position on, on Palestine, not supporting the Arab Spring uh, enough, and hence this is seen as an outcome that now the U.S. Um, you know, complains about, but it's it's part of its doing, um, in a way. So I I think that the only, you know, as I said, this is not enough. What you need to do is to be uh, to proactively seek, as Steve was saying, you know, <coughs> to understand what people want, what they believe in, and to understand that you're not, you know, that the U.S. cannot be the chaperone, cannot be the leader, but if anything, it should just try to coordinate between its own national interests and what people in the region might be uh, striving for. Mohammed, you want to I say a word wanna, about just that? I just want to, speaking anecdotally, um, and I do want to address your methods question about the poll. Um, Rabab, I just, I want to push back and say, you know, when you're the biggest actor in the room, you're always going to be damned if you do, damned if you don't. And I think that while, you know, and I'm saying this as somebody who's committed a significant portion of my life studying public opinion, public opinion absolutely matters. 
Um, but making the most uh, uh, appealing decision that's going to please the street in Cairo, I think if you've been watching what's happening in Egypt in the last two years, that is not a strategy. Um, because in many cases, public opinion will take you to a place that is not very consistent with, with our values, with democratic values, um, with a lot of values. So public opinion is extremely important. But when you craft policy, uh, I would very much caution against deciding which policy is going to be popular. Uh, what was very popular in Egypt just 18 months ago, in my polls at Gallup, was uh, bashing uh, U.S. aid. U.S. aid was, 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 nobody wanted to touch it. 80-something uh, percent, I believe, of Egyptians did not want U.S. aid. They felt like it was a bad influence on Egypt. Go have that conversation now at any coffee shop with any Egyptian and propose to them that the U.S. will cut aid to the military. I'm talking about very ardent military CC supporters. They have a very different attitude. So what we have seen in the region with public opinion is that it has been very effectively manipulated in some environments um, to provide a very convenient uh, uh, fact pattern for whatever powers are trying to operate, from uh, the regimes that are in the region to ISIS, to the Muslim Brotherhood, to Al-Qaeda, to elite groups. Um, following sort of the ebb and flow of public opinion can be extremely disastrous. It doesn't mean that we should ignore people's opinions, but it means that, in my personal view, we should give a lot less credence to this damned if you do, damned if you don't is a problem. I think that's just going to be a reality of whatever the U.S. does. Uh, I, 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 I will take issue with that, but I guess we don't have time to do it. But I do have to take issue with right, that. I'll let's let it do go. it, because this is a, an important issue. Yeah. And so let's, let's, okay. let's do it. Uh, you know, I, my sense is, is that the damned if you do, damned if you don't is right. Um, the policy options have not been, uh, have not actually been good ones for us to, to carry out. And yet, um, there's a reason why we're damned, and that has to do with a trajectory, a history that we have in the region that has not been awfully pretty. Um, I, I, when I did my book, Arab Voices, and I went around the country talking about the myths that Americans have about Arabs, uh, I'd finally get a question someday in the, in the conversation, somebody would say to me, well, what are the myths that Arabs have about us? And I'd say, well, the first one is that they think we're really smart. Um, and I'd get a little bit of a giggle, not just about that much. Um, and and I, they say, what do you mean? And I say, because they think that we are all powerful and that we make decisions based all the time on our interests so that when something happens that's really stupid, they think we actually knew what we were doing and got the outcome we wanted. We invaded Iraq so that Iran would become more powerful, so that the Arabs would have to turn to us for more weapons. And it was all part all of a grand design. Plan, yeah. And the master plan was because they couldn't explain our stupidity. Frankly, they couldn't. And I think that that's an issue that we have to wrestle with is, as Americans, if we're going to look at ourselves as the agent for this change, and I think I'm, I'm with you, that this project ought to be, what do Arabs want? We need to understand what the Arab world wants. But one of the things that, they, that, that, that confounds the whole study is that they don't look at us as the positive agent of change as much as we would, we look at ourselves in the mirror and we say, we're really a great bunch of guys. We know exactly what the world needs. They don't see us in the same way. But and I think that's a problem that we have to wrestle with ourselves as Americans as we approach it. I have to say one word here, because people compare this to Eastern Europe. What happened in Eastern Europe is they wanted to be like the West. Yes. And that is not what's happening exactly. here. Exactly. So and, and I think that President Obama said in 2011, I love that speech when he said, we didn't start this, referring to the Arab Spring. We didn't start it. We can't direct it. We can't determine its outcome. We have, there's a sense of humility that we have to have as we approach this. He then said, what we can do is help them 
in the ways that they want help from us. That, that's the conversation we need to have is that one. And I think you, you, you hit the nail yeah. on the head a couple of times on that one. Thank in you. In an open-ended question, when we ask people, and this is true for Muslim-majority countries and Arab countries, what is the number one thing you admire most about America? Liberty and freedom yep. are the first thing they say, and technology is the second thing they yep. say. Yep, yep. I am in no way saying that people in that region don't want the outcomes of democracy and good governance. I'm just saying that democracy has a really bad brand right now with those people, and absolutely, we've made a, a plethora of very bad policy decisions yeah. in the region, especially in the last 15 years. Um, but moving forward, my point was, we should not simply just do what's popular. Because what's popular, what, what has become popular at this late date in the Arab Spring is not something that we can get behind in a lot of countries. Let me just put it that way. Yeah, I'm going to bring this to a close, with, with, and we'll, we'll do some other questions. I think there are two cautions. One, just because it's short-term popularity is not a, chore, uh, a, a, a true chart for a future of a prosperous and stable Middle East, and I think people in the Middle East will know that. Mm -hmm. Secondly, I just you know, have to add a footnote. Um, America does have its own interests, and sometimes those interests contradicted the preferences of the people of the region. Mm -hmm. And you know, when your country is attacked from that region, mm -hmm. you have to respond and do things that many times are not going to be popular in that e region. So one of the things we have to do if we get this kind of understanding of the region is we're going to have to put it the, through the filter of our own national interests. Let's go. Uh, Jessica, do we have any Twitter questions at this point? No. Uh, Ode? Ode Aberdeen, a member of the Board of the Atlantic Council. I think the big issue that I have seen from these graphs and data, it's jobs, jobs, jobs. You have young people who want prosperity. So the big challenge short term is how do you create jobs? Do you create jobs through innovation? The area, the region has a lot of liquidity. I mean, people talk about the Chinese Which having $2.5 trillion in foreign exchange reserves. If you look at the Arab region, they have an equal amount of money. So how do you bring entrepreneurs to the region? How do you get people to invest? That's, in my view, the big challenge. And I say innovation, not imitation. Uh, very good point. We have a task force that is working on that very question, and I think you are supporting them. And we will, uh, that's clearly a part of, of the study. Jessica, do you have a Twitter question here? We do. We've got a question from Twitter. Um, and the Twitterati really want to know, how can we harness public-private partnerships better to more effectively meet the needs and wants of the people in the region? You know, I, I would refer you back to President Obama's, the same speech I'm talking about, the May uh, 2011 speech on, it was the fifth anniversary, of the, the fifth anniversary of Cairo? Yeah, the, the fourth anniversary or fourth anniversary of the Cairo speech. It, because he talked about all of that, and then when he said, here's what we can do, and, and what he talked about was a fund that would promote the public-private partnerships, that would create investment in small, medium-sized enterprises to create jobs, to help build a middle class in Tunisia and in Egypt, because they were going to be the catalysts that were going to make democracy move forward. We couldn't teach democracy. We could rather create the structures that would, that would enable it. And, and I, I thought that that speech was very thoughtful in that regard. And so I, I think that there are plenty of ideas out there, um, Oda, but I think the question is, 
is getting the will on the part of government to make those programs available and actually push them forward. I know AID, uh, Paige was just here a moment ago, uh, AID does have programs from our end like that. They're underfunded programs, but they're the areas where I think our, our foreign aid programs really ought to be, is creating enterprise funds and public-private partnerships to promote the private sector. Let me specifically answer that, because what happened as a result of the Cairo speech, Secretary Clinton wanted to have this Partners for a New Beginning. Yeah. I chair that. We have public-private partnerships, and Tunisia is a very good example. Mm -hmm. There is a local chapter there, because we're dependent on the local. We just had a investor conference in Tunisia in order to bring public-private partnerships together. So I think that as a model works very well for trying to figure out how to develop this uh, economic, the jobs, jobs, jobs. We are now down to uh, the 4 o'clock hour. Um, so I'm going to take one more question, brief question, brief response. Uh, and then we are going to adjourn. And um, those of you who have to leave can do so. Those who want to stay, we will have a reception out in the hall there. And hopefully a number of you can continue this conversation um, uh, after we adjourn. There was a hand up here. Uh, Ma'am? Yes. Please. Uh, thank you. Hi. Um, my name is Erica, and I'm actually with USAID. So thank you for speaking to us and the work we do. Um, actually, um, I was just wondering if you could perhaps talk a little bit more about um, maybe what role um, USAID in particular or aid, US um, government aid can have in the region because a lot of the findings were very interesting um, and you know, talk to you know, some of the needs that they have in terms of wellness, like jobs, as the other gentleman was saying. Um, but in addition to, to the specific question about public-private partnerships, um, some of the discussions um, that we have been having have been around, um, should we get back to more basic um, development uh, projects, such as uh, infrastructure building, or uh, education, or some of the more sort of core, basic, nitty-gritty um, projects that aid is traditionally known for, for doing. So thank you. Anyone want to take that? Yeah, Mohammed, sure. I, I would strongly advise, just from the polling and from my anecdotal sort of experiences traveling through the region, the latter projects that you suggested, um, the current minister of Temuin, I don't even know how to pronounce translate that to English, but the, the, the basic sort of subs, uh, subsidy needs that poor people go to in Egypt has recently become a superstar simply for improving the way in which domestic subsidized bread is uh, uh, processed through the, the ovens that people go stand in front of every day in Cairo to get, and throughout Egypt to get, to get bread. USA should be helping fix that. USA should be helping fix the water system. USA should be helping fixing nursing in a place like Egypt. Um, or in any other country. I'm just, I just happen to obviously be more familiar with that example because USAID obviously is most active there. But those are the projects that are apolitical that nobody can, can, can blacklist. Um, it, it'll be very hard to convince mm -hmm. people that the US government has embarked on a process to poison Egypt's water because they're helping with the infrastructure of the water system. I mean, that's one crazy theory that probably will not get too much 
a, a, a play. But those kinds of projects demonstrate, number one, you're in it for the long haul. Number two, you're not interested in any kind of short-term political gain. Number three, you're not doing this because there's a protest in Tahrir. You're doing this because this is your long-term commitment mm -hmm. to this region and this country. It has nothing to do with what president's in office um, or here in the U.S. or any of that. You demonstrate that this is the interests of America and the American people moving forward in the long term. That's what has value there. My assessment Edison always is demand-driven. Make the projects demand-driven. That's where polling can help, but that's also where partners on the ground can help. And I right. think our foreign aid used to be more supply-driven, uh, and I think has increasingly become moving, in, gone the movement toward being more demand-driven. Yeah. So we've come to the end of our time. I want to thank uh, Rabab and Jim and Mohammed and Secretary Albright for participating in the panel. Thank all of you in the audience. Please join me in giving a round of applause to our panelists.